Yo, welcome to another episode of the Where It Went podcast, where we are discussing the Revelation Records discography in chronological order. And we got a cool episode for you. Jason, tell him. Oh, oh, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Jason couldn't make this uh, section of the recording, but we wanted to give him a bit of bow anyway. He is. Hey, sometimes, like uh, Chris Callahan once said, there's nights you're good and nights you have fun. And today, Jason is having neither of those. So I can say that because he'll never listen to this. So he might, you never know. I don't, I, when's the last time you listened, went back and listened to one of our episodes? Well, I was just going to comment that this month, as we're recording this, by the time it's out, it will be passed is three years that we've been doing the pod. Mm-hmm. I just looked up now because I said, I know it was in July, July 14th, 2020, first episode went out. Uh-huh. So in a roundabout way to answer your question, I'm going to say sometime in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm the, the only one that listens. I have to re-listen to every episode as I edit it. Right. And so I hear everything. And I, it's funny. I was talking to someone else who did a podcast and they're like, yo, you you listen, you edit. I'm like, yeah, I take out so much dead space and ums and Jason say, no, well, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> or, um, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I take all that stuff out so yeah. that our listeners can have a more seamless listening experience. I will say whenever you've sent like the clips to me and Jason that you've edited, I'm always very impressed at the, um, the magic mm-hmm. that you pull with that, because yeah, there are times where there's, you know, technical difficulties or whatever. And, and Javier kind of ties it all together in a bow, but yeah, I, you know, in the beginning, I listened back to this and, you know, something to do the po- podcast I also mm-hmm. have. And it's just like, you know, I know it's hackneyed. I can't listen to my own voice. Like mm-hmm. it may, it makes me nauseous and, I don't know. I feel like, like, you know how there's some, I think we've talked about it maybe even on here with like musicians. It's like once they put the record out, it's out of their hands and on the same kind of scale. It's like once I, once we do the interview and talk about it, I'm already on to the next thing. It's out for everybody else. Like I don't need to hear it. But the only thing that sucks is we record these early. Right. And then sometimes I'll get messages when the episodes air and I'll be like, what are you talking about? And they'll be like, oh, well, in the interview, you said blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, I, I had didn't no even, idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could have just been like a off-the-cuff remark or something that we weren't even really paying attention to and big deal to someone else. Uh, like so, saying yeah. saying that you didn't like a band's second album or something like that, right? Or anything. <laughs> like <Yeah>. just <laughs> random stuff that's said in passing. But yeah, yeah. like I uh, – I'm a happy three-year anniversary to us. So anyway, what are we talking about today? Rev 72, Speak, The Scum Also Rises, multi-episode guest, Dan O. Yeah, always a pleasure. Uh We'll talk more in the outro about our thoughts on the record and all, obviously, which you can only hear if you are a patron. Like I think our last episode, the damnation was like almost an extra hour. It was of over an hour. It was like an hour and five minutes extra. Plus, and it wasn't just us. It had Brian McTurnan. It yeah. had 
John, John Hennessy. And so like, I haven't even posted the the bonus content that I got with Mike McTurnan talking about Blood Nation, which I got to get right. up. So, yeah. uh, so there's, there's a lot of perks, I think. There is. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, listen, do we have anything that we need to this week? I'll I tell you. One. Yeah, you go first. Okay. I wanted to mention um, your Substack. Mm. Um, I'm finding I I was a person that liked reading like Live Journal and stuff back you know in the early 2000s. Um, the anti well, first let's talk about that antimatter Substack mm-hmm. real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we're not paid to do this, but I or anything we're just fans. Yes, it's super worth it. I subscribed yes. as a paid subscriber. You yes. did, Jason I paid, did. I paid for the whole year up front for antimatter. That's how much and, I believed in the. And project. it's been it's been worth it. Mm-hmm. So far, um, and then you know, Hav did one, and, and and I find it interesting. You're writing some cool things, just like different, you know, memories of. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hardcore content, but also mm-hmm. just like life. And I even consider. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I should do one as like a supplement to the pod. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, bit of bow to 185 miles south, who actually I, I saw it's doing does that. that, and it sounds like. Zach is going to use it to supplement their like playlist episodes and like maybe expound upon the playlist stuff, which is cool. I found Substack through Wes Eisold and subscribed early on to him. I read that he has 12,000 subscribers on Substack, which is wild. Both uh, Wes, which is called Happy New Tears and Antimatter, I pay for because I want to support the artists, I listen to their pod, to their substacks. Mine the doesn't have, voice. yeah, with the robot voice. Mine doesn't have a listen option. And I figured out what I believe why is because I don't have paid, I don't have a paid option. I think that's an upgrade that your substack gets when you charge people money. So I'm thinking okay. about maybe offering it to charge people a dollar or something like that, just so that I can have the listening option because man, it's, it's so much easier. I don't have time to sit and listen and and read all of the stuff. What I will say though, is the, when I listen to it, especially on Wes's, he posts a lot of photographs in the middle of his stories, which don't translate to the audio version. So I've been trying to put in some, some photographs into mine as well. And my grand vision is to eventually have a book. I would love to write a book that's uh, photographs that I took of hardcore shows from 1993 to 2000, including the flyers of the shows that I took the photographs at, and then maybe a paragraph here and there by someone who was at the show or played the show. That's great. So, yeah, that's, and like I said, I'm, I was debating it not even – necessarily just to supplement the pod but just kind of like i thought about it uh-huh. i didn't want to hop on the bandwagon but at the same time it seems kind of fun and i like to write yeah so yeah i for me the the substack is just a chance to flex my writing skills because uh i think that i'm uh i actually went to a academic private school when i was younger and did a lot of um like studies, academic studies. I didn't go to college or anything. So I'm not saying I'm like smart. I'm not a writer, but 
I've read enough and had enough to where I, I believe that I'm, I'm, I'm okay at my, at writing. My wife tells me I'm good. I'm going to believe I found her. It, I found it interesting. And, uh, so yeah, I support, I kind of thought too, for me, just like, even just expanding on like music nerd stuff, you know, knowledge uh-huh. bank, uh-huh. it would be fun to do add little pictures or whatever yeah. and, and stuff instead of just punishing people on Instagram, you know, uh-huh. with your stuff, it's almost like it would kind of be cool to have a catch all for me for basically for the, for the both podcast, you know, kind of everything. That's what I thought. Like podcasts, the fact that I got that vinyl Instagram, like yeah. maybe somewhere to kind of compile it all for anybody who cares. Yeah. But um, anywho. The, I think the other Substack that I follow that's, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but Sam McFeeders from Born oh. Against and Wrangler Brutes, his Substack is all about movies, but like very interesting critiques of like, um, meta reality and artificial intelligence and it's it's pretty wacky i mean he's a wacky guy enough as it is if you're a fan of his stuff but um his sub stack is really very interesting and it's free so i i suggest yeah subscribe yeah i mean i would probably just make it free unless sure i mean it's kind of thing where you know norm well one more thing uh tony retman also has one that i subscribe oh i didn't know that Uh uh-huh yeah um so people should definitely check that it's free um, he had a paid option and then he basically said, you know, he couldn't keep on top of it for, you know, making extra content for people, you know, if you're paying, which I get, um, yeah. uh, the, um, oh goodness. What, what, was, what was I just saying? Oh, like, I think it was Norm had said too. It's like, you know, if you're, if, especially back in the nineties, if you, if someone handed you a zine, Mm-hmm. Like, and ask for a couple bucks for it, you'd probably give it. You know, you know, yeah, or or a, and, if someone walks up to you and is like, "Hey, can I interest you in a book on uh, transcendental yoga?" Uh, you yeah, know, they should give you a couple bucks. Yeah, kick, kick if down you take it, you know, that's my right. thing, and that's that's even the thing with Substack. It's like, well, if somebody, you know, if you're putting out content, and especially if you're going to put out exclusive content for people, and they want to pay. Like I said, the antimatter, I had no issues paying if every couple days I'm getting something to to read uh-huh. um, that's more than just, you know, an Instagram post with a two-paragraph caption. Yeah, and Norm's was interesting. Last thing I'll say about this, Norm revisiting the Mike Judge interview was very interesting to hear. That's some Rev-related content. So Absolutely. I, yeah, I really suggest um, that. I have a bit of bow. Related to Norm, slightly, I got Jeff Rickley's book in the mail, who is the singer of Thursday, which Norm now plays guitar in, uh, just published by Rose Books, I believe it's called, Rose Publishing. And it's a true story. That's all I'm going to say. It's a true story. But his writing style, I'll read some paragraphs um, to my wife and she's like, wow, his writing style is really, really good and really interesting and descriptive. And if you're interested in music, if you're interested in, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I see it's what it's 10 bucks. Like if you're, if you like to read, I highly recommend picking up this book. Um, 
and checking it out. The other thing yeah, he's always to... seemed like a, a stand-up guy, Jeff. I feel uh-huh. like um, I... throughout everybody I know that's known him, you know, seems like a super rad guy. And I, I'm a fan of Thursday. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm, I'm going to bring up. Uh, uh, yeah. So are are we ready to? to I think we're ready to. Kick, all right, let's. Kick it. Can I kick it? Kick it. Kick it. We were uh, really ahead of the time. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're here today to talk about the scum also rises. And lucky enough to be joined by my dear old friend Chris Lisk and Dan O'Mahony. And um, I, I, I think we should just go ahead and jump in with what does the 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 name of the album mean? the album the ep the scum also rises can you can you just kick that for us well it's a it's an obvious and intentional play on the hemingway thing the sun also rises um and it's you know it's the second speak record and it's the record by the touring right mm-hmm. and that act kind of hit the road particularly for for the rev tour with a, a very specific chip on our shoulder which was like not so much lisk and not really just not lisk but that band would like you know, we made it a point to wear all black. Chris did that. We made it a point to use mic stands, right? We'd go on tours where, okay, nobody's going to shave on this tour. And almost everywhere we stayed, that band drank like crazy every night. And, you know, that band being on the Rev Tour stuck out. We also made it a point to play our asses off to try and be, you know, we at least made our attempt at being the strongest outfit execution-wise every single night on that tour. And I think... The whole the scum also rises is a reference to that. And I mean, if you look at that record and you look at the packaging, it has this declaration in it that's very middle fingerish. And that it's just this screed of a bunch of things that I think is sort of antagonistic or intended to be contrarian. It's my inner Billy Rubin coming out a little late in the game. But uh, you know, at the same time, we appreciated being on Rev. We had a lot of fun on those tours. So it, it's a little bit complicated, but yeah. The use of the devil, the use of that screed, the, the scum also rises. It's just an att- attempt to differentiate us from the rest of the youth revival. And I'll, I'll, I have the record. I'll read what you're talking about, the inside, for those who don't have it. Uh, it says, in case it was less than obvious, speak 714. We'll just say speak. I know the 714 is silent, right? Uh, speak is a pro-choice, pro-queer, occasionally pro-chemical, anti-racist, anti-homophobic, anti-organized religion, anti-click, pain in the ass. Correct. I like it. I like yeah. it. Um, and just for for anybody who doesn't know, the Rev Tour was Speak, Battery, Better Than a Thousand. In My Eyes? Yeah, in My Eyes, well. was that it? Okay, yeah. so it was the four. So can I, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in on that and add to what Dan said. So we, we kind of, I'm sure you guys got the history of speak through 
the first record and how it was, you know, somewhat of a side project. And then Dan kind of created this live band, which was a lot different than kind of the Foster version. And the record was exactly what he said was like, we, we did the rev tour and the whole goal was coming in as like, um, kind of punk guys, you know, like we were all kind of punk rock guys and there was the whole youth crew revival thing kind of happening. And we were just like, we literally were driving up to the first show in, in DC. And I saw a dead deer on the freeway and I tried to get him to pull over and let me tie the dead deer to the hood of the car. Cause I was like, we're fucking coming in like chaos. Hot. You know, like we just wanted hot. to, we just wanted to go crazy, you know? And, um, and I never realized the, uh, the, what does it say? Occasional, uh, occasionally pro chemical. Yeah. Is that because of me? Cause it's, yeah, not, I, just because didn't want, I didn't one. want people to think, I mean, I'd already had the Ed Buster tag for years. Yeah. And even though I wanted to raise that issue on there rather than trying to pretend we were something we weren't, I didn't want to say, Oh, we're full blown morons. And eventually you know, one night it'll get so bad. I don't remember what song we played. You know, that was that was in Europe. You know, full quite a while, quite a while later. When I think we were a badly fatigued outfit. But yeah. uh, I mean, one thing is we had when we practiced in practice studios, we hit it hard. But eventually, we had access to residential practice at Lisk's place, and that band was drilled well. I mean, those sets are watertight. Like it was, it was a good live band i don't know that it met with the acceptance that i felt it deserved but you know what was me poor little baby yeah. you know it's like it's yeah, we, we practiced a ton we did three tours in like a year you know like we just hit it as hard as you could as a full-time band and then it just you know it was just like boom and then that was it you know well, it, it, it's one of those things i think the reason i was whining about talking about acceptance is I've done a lot of bands and like 411 and China's Club, they both executed at a really high level, right? Um, 411, you could say that's almost entirely just, you know, Mario and Kevin, their talent level made it hard for them to do anything other than really execute that way. But this was the first band I was in that went at it like as a mission. Like, you know, we play the songs in three song blocks, try to keep the momentum going through the whole set. You know, we would drill and drill and drill and you know, No for an Answer never had that ethic, but it had all of its traction. You know, Carrie Nation never had that ethic, you know, whereas this band could have blown those bands off the stage in terms of level of execution, but it's all, what are you doing and when are you doing it, you know? So, but every every artist, particularly any aging punker, you know, whose belly is growing, but his reputation is not, is going to whine about his, the way his own work is received. I mean, you guys want to talk to us about it. That's thank you enough, you know. No, I, I, and I definitely get, and I mean, that era, it's like you said, like, it's all about the time and place and, and stuff. And it's like 1998 for hardcore, especially Revelation was all about that youth crew revival, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Nikes faded haircuts and, you know, uh, champion hoodies, whatever, like kind of trying to recreate what had happened 10 years earlier i mean that i mean jace at least on on for us on the, on east, the east coast, coast absolutely which yeah. was me and jason like that was 
that was hardcore. Like that was, that was, I mean, I lived and breathed that. I never really prescribed necessarily to the full on look. Like I didn't, I never owned a pair of Jordans or whatever, but the whole, that whole vibe of stuff. But it's funny because listening to this record, it's like, it's not that different. It's fast punk hardcore, you know, like, it's not like, like just because you weren't singing about being stabbed in the back, you know, like, I don't know. And that's one of the things I like about the record is I was like, there's clearly like, there's lyrical depth to it. And that's not to say that other bands, even on that rev tour, like, I mean, I think battery have some amazing lyrics um, and went a little bit deeper than the normal youth crew stuff. But I always admire like, you know, Dan with your bands, like you, um, you put it all out there. You, you really, you know, you're not just singing about bullshit. Well, there's, I think that kind of what you guys are referring to right now is going to require two different perspectives. Because Lisk and I were coming into this band from two very different places. And what it was, was like for Chris, I mean, it was one of your first more serious or visible bands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they were excited to give this kind of thing a try. For me, like you're talking about the youth crew revival was all this at the time. It was all about this. It was all about that. Right. I hadn't played this music, this, that type of music, in five or six years. If you listen to everything I was doing up in the Bay Area, it sounded nothing like this. And if you listen to what I was doing in Southern California right before this, it was God Forgot. And before that, you know, before that, it's 411. So Foster coming to me and saying, I have a bunch of songs I did with, you know, somebody from Pennywise and this guy you don't know from this band, uh, Straight, uh, Straight Face. Or straight waist, I hate that blow that I know they're a big band. But anyway, you know, these other guys I didn't see it as being part of anything or catering to anything. I didn't know that in the revelation offices there'd be a market for it as part of some grand strategy. What I heard was my chance to sing on the LP version of the Unity UR one record. You know, it was like, you know, maybe my favorite hardcore seven inch ever listening wise, and I was like yeah, I could do that. And I sound meaner than Pat. So let's give it a try. You know, I can sing in that register now. I'm 50 pounds lighter, you know, and it was exciting for me. It was when Joe and I worked together for a longer period of time that compatibility comes into it. And that's where this whole second offing comes from. So like the fact that we may have, we maybe didn't sound that different from what was all the rage at the time of the of the, of the Rev Tour is purely coincidental. Like for me, playing doing a full record in that sound was a chance to revisit my very specific Orange County past and guys I grew up around. Sure. No, and I mean that makes sense. And I know we talked to about you know the beginning of the band and how Foster had these songs. Um, and things to like me, that. the fun story I was trying to segue without just you know kicking him under the table while we're not in the same room is I've heard from Panner several times about these guys hearing about it and deciding to try out for it. And I don't know what that was like or what you thought you'd be walking into. I mean, you guys crushed it. You know, it was better, you know, that rhythm section worked together better than the original. Oh, that was that. I forget who told me you were looking for a bass player and a drummer and somebody gave me your number and I left you the most obnoxious voicemail of all time. I said, I don't care who you fucking have. We're better than them and let us fucking prove it. And then he called back. He's like, Hey, and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm talking to fucking Dan Mahoney right now. This is like, this is like a few years after the Plan B videos with 411, 
local skate legends, Ed Templeton, Mike V, like they both put 411 in their parts. Like 411 was our shit, right? For me and Hav, like that was our shit. Big deal. And so, so for me, I was just like, oh, fuck, I'm fucking, I'm going to fucking figure out how to do something with Dan, you know, like this will be awesome. And then, yeah, we just put our freaking stamp down and then went for it. And we went and did the practice and I fucked up one of the baselines and I was just like, oh, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. Panner fucking crushed it. He's got it. No problem. I'm like, they're going to go with another bass player. And then one of the guitar players, uh, I think it was Jeff was just like, oh, dude, I could never even figure out that part. I'm glad you did. You're totally good. And I was like, oh, fuck, I think we're good. And I think, Dan, that first practice, you were like, yeah, you guys are good. Like, let's go. This is what we got a tour booked. We got freaking this next. This is what we're doing. It was like, okay, cool. Let's go. Let's party. So what year would this, would this have been 98 then? I no. think. You think? No. I would I, think it would be towards the end of 97, but it might have been 98. Fall yeah. 97 sounds like it. it so you were be- how old, Chris? 20? Fall 97. Yeah, 19 or 20. Wow. Yeah, I think I was 19 when I, the first thing I ever did was go on tour with Ignite. And that was like March. I did like a small run with 1134, but a full US tour with Ignite, which by the way, was 24 hours before they left. They were trying to find a roadie because their roadie backed out. And, and Enright from 1134, the singer of 1134 was like, oh, I got a guy. He'll go. He'll leave tomorrow. And he called me. I was like, yeah, I'll go. Just pick me up. I'll go for 30 days. I'm cool. You know, where, is, where was that tour at? Was it, it a whole US? Wow. This and that was, the mo- this is this the most, lineup? the most Lisk shit ever. If, yeah. if Lisk has an idea, he'll fucking make it happen. I've known this about him since fucking day one. And sometimes it seems like a harebrained scheme and sometimes it is, but it's always going to be done and it's going to be done like with a hundred, a hundred percent at least. Yeah. There's a, there's a term going around called getting lisked and it's like, Hey, Hey, come over. Uh, I I just, I want to show you this record I got or something. And it's like, Oh, okay. I'll cruise over. And then it's like, you, you don't have any plans, right? No. Okay, cool. All right. We're going to go drive to this fucking water park in the middle of the night and sneak in and we'll be back at 3 a.m. It's like, dude, what? I got to go home. It's like, no, sorry. You're getting less. Yep. <laughs> can I, can I jump in? Let me jump in on a random story. I don't know if Dan knows this or not. I mean, I know he knows this, but I don't know if he remembers this. Do you remember why we did the EP? I was figuring that would come up and I have different thoughts on it. So no, go ahead. <laughs> We had a merch bill from the first tour we did with Rev and you made a deal with Jordan. You were like, hey, if we give you an EP, can you just cancel our debt on the merch deal? And he was like, yeah, sure. So we went to the, the um, God, what was the name of the recording studio? Does Moon it say it on the record? Moonsong, which was the guy who used to work at Fender and like he, he, it was in Corona and we went to Moonsong and we recorded the songs and then just gave them the freaking EP. Dan, I think, did all the uh, all the artwork and stuff. And uh, yeah, that it, was great. it was all done where where Eric and Jeff and I were living. But I, I think Eric should get more credit for it. I've always got my fingers in things like I want to use this color scheme. I want this here. I want this there. But I'm a 
more of a hands-on graphic guy now. I needed somebody else's fingers back then. Mm. I saw it said Eric. Uh, it said Eric. Eric cover Simmer. concept. Yeah. Yeah. Cover yeah. concept on the insert. So. So I mean, Eric. Eric goes in publicly usually by Eric Y W H Y. Okay. But I mean, he was like a primary graphic artist for Epitaph Europe for years. Oh, and, cool. You know, he's been living in Amsterdam for more than twenty years. I mean, he's he's a unique story unto himself and kind of a kind of a different talent. He's a bit of a current or a human curveball. The uh, I talk to him constantly. I mean, he provides me sanity during some really weird times. But I guarantee you, his love for this record will never die because somehow he learned to fly on the back cover. <laughs> oh yeah, it looks awesome. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. yeah. He uh, okay. So the girl that took the photos, Justine Dimitrik, right? There's a there. Who is the like other East Coast famous female photographer? Danielle, Danielle Dombrowski. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, sorry. There's another one. She, um, Jessica like, Jessica Humphreys is uh, from Virginia, and she took a lot of photos on the East Coast. Okay, now I feel period. like a total moron because I thought uh, Tracy Pappas, <clears throat> yeah, uh, Tim Mc... BJ, BJ Pappas. Yeah. Okay, I've met BJ Pappas three times in the past twenty years, and every single time I've met her, I do this every seven years, and I totally forget, and it'll probably happen again in another seven years. Every time I see her, I go, "Hey." you did the photos for the speak record on revelation and every time she goes oh my god i don't remember that one bit and i'm like no you totally did that's crazy nice to meet you you did i i was in the i was on the record i you took photos of me and she's like yeah cool i don't remember that and i'm like okay (laughs) i've done it three times now and it will happen again that's how great my memory is justine was was part of the click that like sort of the Josh Stanton nation, like one one had like their own group of friends and there was like some carryover when speak at the road. We knew Justine really well from the four one years. And she was like, you know, wired in with like vermiform and ABC no Rio types really heavily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, her name was in a lot of records from back then, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for taking photos. I heard from her for the first time in years just a few days ago. Uh, she said, I finally started listening to your podcast and had some nice things to say. And I was like, haven't done one in six months, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're all shit. Where were those uh, photos taken at? Do you remember what show that was for the front and the back cover? Yeah, the isn't that, I was going to say, isn't that the go out the back door and puke show? That was New Jersey. Yeah. I don't didn't, know. Didn't Panner, Panner, there were these doors that could open behind the stage. I think Panner not from anything scandalous, you guys, just from playing so hard. You just opened the back doors, walked outside, and blah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could remember who the promoter was because I was kind of shitty to him, and I would love to send him a uh, apology card or something. Or well, I guess so, I could do it here. I, I, whoever you are, I love you, and I apologize for being a jerk. Well, and, so I'm going to disclose. I'm going to disclose the dark side of getting lisped. Okay, <laughs> we did. We did a solo tour where I think our roles kind of became defined in the van. Um, and then we did the Rev tour, and then we did Europe. I'm not sure if they were in that order, but I believe they were. Um, and I think by the end of the first tour, we knew if there was a problematic promoter or just in general, time to collect the money. Let's right. And if the club guy says, "Well, it's got messier than we thought," maybe Chris was like. Fuck you, I'll sweep the fucking club. Get me a fucking broom. We want our guarantee, or we want this and we want that. And we played for peanuts. 
but it was like this is just a person who doesn't accept refusal. It's it's the same as way as he is with everything else. He just said laser like focus that freaks people the fuck out and doesn't stop until he has what he wanted. And in this case, it was usually just about fair treatment. But he was a beast. And I mean, yeah. in Europe, we have road managers, and sometimes he'd end up haggling with some German instead of the people we were paying to do it. Yeah, Max Berner, who's yep. who's a good friend, but. Towards the end of the European tour, he was just having so much fun partying. I just kind of took over the tour manager role. I was just like, I don't need to speak German. They all speak English. You know, it was just like, okay, here you go. Just get paid. You know, mm-hmm. just that DIY, just like, eh, I, if I can see it's possible, I'm going to do it. You know, that was always fun. But yeah, that kind of, I, I did kind of take over as like the business role of the band. It was just like, I'll collect the money. I'll divvy it out. I'll deal with merch, whatever. That was interesting for me because I was the one who had always done it in my previous bands. And it was kind of nice having having somebody else who was even better at it. Uh, List, do you want to know something, some shinfo about Speak? Always, yes. I never saw Speak 714 play. Um, I only actually remember you being on like one local flyer. Like my memory's shoddy, but I was also at this time now in my own doing doing tours in a, in a different band, and so maybe either just wasn't around when you guys were playing, or I don't or think there was like a twice. Well, so I was going to say it wasn't really a Southern California party. Yeah, yeah. we did two yeah. shows. We did two shows in Southern California with AFI. We did a Rev Tour show, and we did a show in Bakersfield-ish with Treadwell and F minus. And that's the whole oh, shebang in Southern California. Yeah, but I don't even because the Rev I remember the Rev tour playing at Showcase, but yeah. I don't I don't remember. Did you guys play that? Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, we got so was uh, in my eyes, fucking in my eyes took speak and they fucking wiped their ass with us. Yeah, but I have a different take on it, but well, you took we got to decide. We got to decide how vinegary we want to get here. Well, they're great guys. We fucking love those dudes, but they fucking they won. They fucking won. Because here was the thing: when we did the Rev tour, it was okay on the East Coast. You guys are an East Coast band. We'll play before, in my eyes, and then when we come out west, we'll switch. Uh, and I think it was the first time we switched. We played after them, and those fucking cheaters came out at the He's showcase gonna... and played three minor threat songs in a row to open their set. <laughs> and I'm like, we all were just like, we're fucked. That's like, what I was going to say. I was, as I was going to say, you know, either those guys ate our lunch at those shows or Ian did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They fucking, they fucking cheated, but they, they fucking had. It's fine. Let, you know, an... We'll go back East and we're going to open with three black flag songs and bye. Yeah, you know, <laughs> they did great. They they that was a that was an amazing show, and it was like, it you just were sitting there thinking like, how fucking long have these guys been planning this? Because they didn't yeah. do it. It was clearly a at thing. All. They didn't do it one time on the whole fucking tour, and all of a sudden, as soon as we land in California, they and they just fucking wiped the floor with us. Was, I've got to tell you guys, I, I find it admirable. I respect. The self-awareness to know that your own material isn't good enough. (laughs) (laughs) And I commend them on having the the courage to take that step. 
Oh, Dan's bitter. The, cur- the courage bitter. to care, as it were. Uh, That's one of the... Um, no, they would, would. They would think that. They would find that funny too. That's the thing. No, oh no, the, some of the conversations I would have within my eyes, guys, that whole tour, and with their friends who had you know tattoos that cost more than my car, was always you know sort of, yo, Dan, what would happen if you and you know Freddie Madball or some other vicious, you know, gang adjacent bad man who I don't know, you know, who would win in a fight? You know, you were Mike Judge, and it was always like, that's not really who I am. The West Coast doesn't have a counterpoint to that but their whole take you know was they had a real affection for hardcore legendary and for mythos and everything else you know and it, it was fun and it was interesting to be around but i mean we were cordial and everything else but yeah they know me as a shit talker and a contrarian that whole speech about that show just now wouldn't pop a single eyebrow in that crew <laughs> oh yeah for sure like i said yeah, no one, they would they would they're gonna hear this and laugh you know yeah there's not there's the, the the record is so short and just it was so just like everything about it was so quick so all of our stories are about those tours and mainly that rev tour because that's where everything was built for this record it was right from that tour you know I listened to it in the half hour before this uh podcast right because frankly I'm not that familiar with the material anymore. and it has a rushed vibe to it like the Production of the music doesn't do the music itself justice. It, it's guitars a little thin, things like that. And I'm of the opinion, if we'd taken our time, I mean, you didn't do two song singles back then, mm-hmm. but like a well produced two songer of uh, what is it? Uh, Stand and diminish and whatever the first song is. Stick and move. Stick and move. Yeah. Those two songs by themselves. Produced as well as Knee Deep in Guilt is a badass little record. Well, you know, trying to finish a full four song EP out of a sense of obligation, maybe it didn't turn out as well as it did. When I listened to this record this week, my first thought was like, oh, it's over already? Like I was expecting more and I, I wanted, I wanted it to keep going. And I was like, that's, that's it. That's all I get. Uh, Okay. And so I just played it again. Because uh, I enjoyed these songs, and I thought that this could have been a, another full length, and I would have, I as a consumer and fan, would have been okay with that. Um, the production that you bring that up, the only thing I noticed, there's like a weird, like hum sometimes when the guitars ring out where it it almost feels like there's too much low end not not you said it sounded thin i almost felt like there was like a wall coming through a couple times and i was like is that my headphones or what's going on here but i mean i'm i'm neither a producer nor a musician so it might be better for chris to hey, i'm <laughs> neither of those either i plug in and play whatever right. is let somebody else handle that stuff um I mean, you wrote you wrote my favorite song on that record, Chris. I mean, what do you think the music was? What do you think of the production? Oh, it was it it was fast and cheap, and that was the whole point. It was hey, we've got these songs, we've got a great deal on this recording studio. That recording studio did we did a lot of stuff, not we, but like Hav, like our you know suppression swing recorded there, third degree third recorded degree. there, like a bunch of Orange County bands started recording there because. You got a pretty decent recording for very, very, very little money. 
and you know the however many thousands of dollars we owed on our on our merch bill the um you know to be able to get a quality recording that we could hand over to rev for i want to say it was under five hundred dollars oh wow and i think they charged us fifteen dollars an hour yeah wow even then that was that was Mm -hmm. low is is was um so it says you know moon song studios like you said uh engineered by bob moon was he a hardcore guy or just a guy that had a christian rock yeah he was a christian rock guy and he was the um he worked with fender a lot he i think they moved moonsong studios like i think he created a fender recording studio because fender was like a big corona company and he got tight with them and did a bunch of stuff with them and i remember he was closing down the um closing up shop or whatever. And I think kind of moving it there, I could be dead wrong, but that's what I somewhat remember about it. If you did he look... record, did he record knee deep in guilt also? I don't think so. No, no. I, I think he did, but I could did be, he? again, yeah. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the world's worst archeologist. In my own material. I'm did. just going by discogs because hey. I was going to ask you what you wanted discogs to do differently with this says, recording, yeah. Dan. So oh, maybe Foster, Foster was working on the knee deep in guilt body material for a long okay like i'm I'm second half of that story like i'm all of the lyrical content and it's my beautiful never to weigh only 170 pounds again face on the front but uh it's largely foster's i'm not gonna say it's foster's really proud of it but it's some of foster's best work because he had a lot of freedom spent a shit ton of time on it he didn't have to argue with me or argue with anybody in ignite you know, while he was getting the material ready, he was just off being Joe. And how long did you spend in the studio for this gun also rises? Do you remember how many days it was or was it? Well, so five of those songs were tracked before I even knew those they existed. Oh, he's and saying the, the seven inch. The seven yeah, inch. the seven inch. Oh, the, the scum also know. rises. Yeah. Yeah. That and yeah, maybe 13. It was moon song. It was moon song as well, Jason. You're right. For the uh the LP. I mean, we did it like a weekend, didn't we? Yeah, it was two. It was like one day music, one day vocals. Oh yeah, it was, it was short. Can I? Okay, I'm gonna stir some shit right now. Uh, Dan, feel free to deny this, but this is fucking. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck some people up with this one, and who knows how accurate it is? It could be total, total garbage. So I remember you telling me the record deal and the money, and again you know i'm looking at all the people on here besides dan like this is all shit if i did this with you guys this is the kind of shit that i would fucking care about right the money side right i was told that there was a three album deal the first record you guys got 15 grand for and then it was like 17 for the second 19 for the third so that's the first I've ever heard of that, and I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it past Foster to have been trying to negotiate something like that. But that was not anywhere in the contract, and there actually wasn't. There was no um, contract. No, there was a contract. Oh, there was. Okay. And so what Rev got up front for that record, we gave them five songs, and said, you know, we can do five more and finish this. We did it for fourteen grand, but we didn't re-record it. So you know, it was a, a lot of money was saved there. Uh, there was absolutely magical personal chemistry and nothing but laughs and good times and hugs between all the people involved on playing that record. And that's why the entire lineup was replaced. Um, 
But <laughs> the, the lion's share of it <clears throat> to me and Joe, and that was kind of the way Joe brought it to me. Mm. But then just trying to run off with those songs was weird. And Randy from Pennywise is not going to fart in high wind without being compensated. So we cut him a check for a couple grand for the songs that he played on. Sam, I think, was initially expected to stick around. And it was where I met Doug McKinnon. He's ended up being one of my favorite people to play with. And I think we gave Doug either a grand or 1400 bucks for his track tracks. And this was the first time, although I think Doug, Doug was the drum, drummer for the whole record. He played on the remaining five as well. It was Doug and Sam on the remaining five and Doug and Randy on the first five. Uh, but anyway, Foster and I were butting heads really hard. And the one thing is you'll get two different stories from me and Foster about how it worked. But a lot of it came down to, in my opinion, and I hope you can laugh about this because I tell this story without malice. This is 74, maybe 75 years ago. Yeah. But uh, he and I weren't getting along. And I wanted to keep doing it. I liked the idea of taking it out on the road. I was worried that would eventually not be part of my life. So he and I, are, he's like, you know, just out. He's got to go. This guy's got to go. You got to. You got to shave your head. We got shit that didn't interest me. And I told him no. And he said, he said, well, then I'm going to call Jordan. I'm going to go to Jordan. And I was like, I already did. And they still want the band if it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> that is maybe the one time I got a little bit Don Corleone music. And if Joe doesn't agree with it, or if it's or if his story is just as good. More power to him. This is old men talking about wagging their weenies. It's not important. Yeah. But that is I, the way that is that's the way it actually happened. But anyway. One follow-up. One follow-up, Dan. Yeah. Um, did you see, did you actually write that check to uh Randy, or did Foster tell you he wrote the check to Randy? That's fascinating. <laughs> see, I didn't really know Randy. I remember when we took it to him. I think, why does Randy say he never got paid? No, I don't. I don't know. I just, I just. Well, so here's what I remember: is we, it, it ended up getting delivered to him a lot later than expected, and I went over there with Joe. I mean, Joe and I were still friends and are still friends. Yeah, we we're not getting along at the time. Um, and I remember Joe saying right before we get out of the car, "Well, I guess we're gonna see what a fucking millionaire punker's house looks like." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay, they were that much. I mean, they certainly went on. Uh, we love. It's that. funny because that's how my brain. I'm like. Why would that dude care to get paid for playing on five songs when, like, I'm sure he's making money? But that's just that's the way I think. Like, I'm, well, I just Shiner's Club dealt with them later. Uh, dealt with them in 2020, and they were great. They were nice. They were, you know, Fletcher was abusive towards Colin because he's a small person, and uh, you know, we had to fight for the hundred dollars we got paid for the show. It sounds like I'm bitching. Those were the most exciting crowds to be in front of, and the biggest trip. And John Coyle made this acknowledgement. He's all, I'm always prejudiced about this, and I don't know if this is my punk rock. He's all, the thing I didn't realize until we got off that stage is everybody in this room is just here to have a good time. And he's all, that's not always true at all. That was the upside of all that. That was the positive experience in that. That was Shiner's Club played with Pennywise? Shiner's Club played three shows with Pennywise, I think. Two or three. Um, but the trippy thing was, you're figuring these guys are getting upwards of 10 grand for these bills. And we got $100. And that was odd to me. But it wouldn't happen if they, if that wasn't meticulously managed. So I'm saying I'm not surprised he insisted on being paid for, for the speech. For 
Fair. And, they were, and, they're, and they're gross worth. Their net worth was worth a lot less in the 90s than it is now. So, I mean, yeah, I absolutely believe he expected a check for his, for his tracks. I wanted to the ask business, about the... the business end of this to this day makes me extremely uncomfortable. And speak, early speak is maybe one of the only times I ever planted my feet and really played hardball with people. Like, I felt the need to to go toe-to-toe with Joe, but also I think Rip, Chris was there when, like, we would negotiate being fronted the money for merch and things like that or talking with tour support with Jordan and stuff, and I was no fun. You know, like, I, 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 I came to play, and that didn't even survive that era. I've gone so far back to just being so business averse, it's not even funny. Like, I just... And that's to my detriment. Like Chris, who does so much stage management and deals with large venues and large numbers, and these things has a diligence about that that my life would have been better served to have developed at some point. But hey, I am who I am. Yeah, I love negotiating no for an answer. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, give us whatever. Can we hey, have some pay- back coats? <laughs> you know. Hey, I'm going to pay you this much money. Yeah, whatever. I don't care. I'm. Oh, cool. Let's go. He's not kidding. I'm horribly that way. It's like I have a real job. It doesn't. I'm not getting rich off it. I live in a one bedroom apartment. But oh, too many, too, too many trips to the cafe de Grand. Too much flipside and maximum rock and roll. I can't. I can't seem to grow up with the times. Right. Well, and that's what I was saying. Like that's kind of even where my my mind was at with, with the whole Pennywise. Like, what would they need? What would he need money for? But then there is the flip side. Well, it's like, well, the fact that, like you said, meticulously managed. Well, but here's I'll counterpoint my own my own thing, and I hope you guys aren't feeling exhausted by this. And Chris, I hope no I'm not, not no. steamrolling. But the older you get, the more realistic and more mature a thing it is to set aside space and set aside disciplines to subsidize doing this. His music is almost impossible for me right now, and it's almost impossible to find musicians who can create the time for it because they have real life fiscal responsibilities. And music takes up enough time and enough money that they put those things in danger. And I'm surrounded by people who played the game and who learned the skill sets to be able to do do self-supporting music well into middle age, while me and some of my friends have not. So it's like, you know, maybe if at some point you had grown up just a little bit and realized that the older you get, the more your time is worth money, you know. It yeah, might I have a more positive thing. Yeah. I, I I deal with this on a daily basis, booking Garden Amp. And it's, you know, for somebody who, a musician where that's their career and the money they're banking on, if it's, you know, a, a guy who seems like, you know, maybe he made $500,000 a year ago and he hasn't received a paycheck in 13 months that 2000 is going to be like, Hey man, like I didn't save all my money over here. So hand that 2000 over. I need that bad. You know, band money always gets split at least four ways. There's that. Yeah. You know, there's like Mario has kids, kids plural, right? Mario Rubelkaba. Yeah. And yeah. 411 done. You can't get 411 to fart in high wind. If it interferes with any of his steadier and more dependable gigs, because Papa, you know, and I can't point a finger at it. And I can't be mad at it. You know, I'm just excited that I get to play with him when I do. Yeah, there's a there's a big difference between, you know, 
sideline playing music and like people who do it for real for a living. Right. It, it's and, a bummer. And I don't know that I've wanted to do it for a living, but I really do get scared that it's not a part of life getting going forward unless you can, can find people in incredibly similar situations to your own. And I remember Chris Loman and I had a talk about two years ago where he said he was just overdoing bands and didn't know if he ever wanted to be in another band. And nobody cares when you're this age or anything else. And I could not relate at all. One of the rare times that I couldn't uh, relate to him other than when we act like there's Jesus. Um, but I'm just still very anti-religious. But anyway, uh, I couldn't relate to it. But now I can relate to it because I can sit there with him and say, I don't know how many people I know can do bands. You know, and I never saw that coming. Well, because like you said, like now, you know, people in middle age, you either have a full-time gig, right? Of if you're not a musician, you're working a job, you know, where you, that's how you keep a roof over your head and feed yourself. And if you have a, a partner and, and children, then there's, there's even more there. So yeah, like now as an adult, I get it. Like sometimes you see these bands that are taking the constant victory lap, you know, the old bands and they're playing the festivals and it's like, but then I, I put myself in their shoes. I'm like, yo, if someone wanted one of my bands to play and I could make a couple grand in a weekend, just hanging out and, you know, pay a month's rent or something. I'd be stupid to say no. And I still know. have very mixed feelings about, as you put it, the endless victory lap. But it doesn't seem as simple to me as it used to. You know, sure. like I used to be one of the more outspoken people. <laughs> I used to be one of the more outspoken people about all of it. And these days I try to, you know, slow your roll, Tiger. Who knows what you're going to have to say about it in two years. I mean, I still have my opinions about the motivation of certain ongoing repetition, but I get the I get the practical aspects of it a lot more than I used to. Sure. So um you can count on us for a deeply controversial, cynical, depressing interview, guys. So. No, it's good. <laughs> no, man. Is, no, I like it. I think I think we all I love like this it, and I, it, and I yeah. think people, you know, definitely the whole financial side is interesting. I mean, even we've started now even asking like how much did it cost to record this? You know, like, yeah, I did this episodes before that, but like I asked Game Face, you know, how much, how much was it to record, you know, this, this record? Um, Cause I do find that stuff interesting to see, uh, you know, what, because again, at this time, a lot of the bands I think were trying to really make a go for it, if that makes sense. Like, you know, Rev was really doing well at this time. I, I would assume if they're able to give, you know, that kind of advance for an, an indie label in the 90s, you know, 14,000 or whatever it was, they had the success with Sensefield and Texas is the Reason. Like they were doing, again, from an outsider perspective, I'm assuming pretty well. So it is interesting Speak. to see. Speed got a $14,000 check because the returns on Ignite were no fucking joke. It's a, it's a short walk. It didn't have much to do with Rev's undying passion for 411 and both ends broken. You know, I don't know. Just, maybe they just love Dan O. They, they love. Well, no, Jordan and I have always been good. I mean, like I said, they backed me when when the when the headbutting started. But uh, you know, but I think early on, Joe coming to them, fresh on his departure from Ignite, saying I can get a record with Dan O'Mahony, I, I think 
Sure. I mean, I'm an original six rev artist. I think it all looked great on paper. And I say, and I love the record, but you know. Uh, I was going to say, I know we, we, we talked about like, as far as your body of work, like you, you rate the speak stuff pretty highly, it seems right. Among what you've, you've done. Cause you have done a lot of bands. The speak LP is one of my two favorite albums that I've ever done. And the speak tours are the best road work I've ever been a part of. You know, like the other best thing you've ever done. Dark Crusade is garbage. I hate you. <laughs> there's, <that's laughs> a, there's a hot take. Dark Crusade is a great record by four guys, and then there's Dan's vocals. Four one one seven inch number two. Just I hate the vocals on Thought Crusade. I'm really proud of the lyrics. It's an important distinction. Right, that's my number one also. Thought Crusade. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna say, and uh, to jump back to like the tour stuff and how kind of speak, like with me and Hav, we kind of had the, we were very like punk hardcore with like mm-hmm. the Rorschach born against mm-hmm. struggle, Iconochrist, like all that shit was really big in our world mm-hmm. when we were young. And Dan was kind of weirdly a part of that world too. And Sam like, McFeeders calls me a double agent. Yeah. <laughs> That's, good. That's a good call. And uh, so that was that was another thing was, you know, was we were kind of from that like weird, like dark punk kind of hardcore world, Mm -hmm. you know. And so that was that was also kind of the scum also rises kind of theme was like that that world, basically. We said you did shows with AFI and like during this era of AFI makes complete sense. Like it was that was a good fit. You know, yeah, for because yeah, we're not we're not talking, you know, MTV million dollar production AFI. We're talking like black sales and shut your mouth. Oh yeah, this was this was shut your mouth, I believe, and it was chain reaction. But before chain reaction, it was called the public storage, and then I think obviously yeah. they had to change it because of someone probably got a cease and desist. But yeah, that was a that was a fun show. That was. That was, that was so weird for me because they were starting to get huge traction. And in my head, Davey was still the busboy from Laval's Pizza and Burger. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So did you know you knew him back when you were living in, in that area, I guess, just from being around? Greg, he cleaned my tables. <laughs> yeah, I knew, I, knew Dave, I, knew Dave, I knew Davey back. I knew him back when he was in short pants. Exactly. And had no uh, no makeup or, or devil lock. Um. I remember well, that think, going pretty far back. But yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, yeah. I was going to say, I think maybe, maybe not as much of, as, of either. Yeah. Um, with the Rev tour, just to go back to that, because we've actually threatened to have like, we should do an episode on the Rev tour, you know, get a bunch of you guys on that were on the tour. Um, what Was there a clear cut? Because I, I, it played Philly. And for whatever reason, I, I wasn't able to make it at the you know 17 years old didn't have a car whatever um was it was it one of those things because to me all the bands seemed kind of on equal like like you said where depending on coasts that you switched you know between you and in my eyes was there a clear like headliner Dude, was, it, was it one of these things is not like the others one of these things is not quite the same trust me it was not it was not for the same band on the it, yeah, better than a thousand was clearly the headliner, and I, I they had to play Youth of Today songs. I don't remember, but I they for sure did. Yeah, they did and, take a stand. 
And then, yeah. And then it, it was, it was very obvious. The, honestly, the only show that I remember that was that one showcase show within my eyes where we played after them. If hindsight, they should have played after us based on crowd response. But other than that, it was, it was, it made sense. Every band where they were positioned made sense. Better than a thousand headlining, better a battery direct support, and then in my eyes and speak. Yeah, it wasn't a full rotation. It was in my eyes and speak. Always. Yeah, we were we were the only ones that rotated. And you guys were the new. Well, better than a thousand wasn't new, but they were new at the same yeah. time. Yeah, that. <laughs> Yeah, Ray had, you know, Ray was coming hot from some shelter records and obviously the youth of today stuff was kind of had that, you know, that coming back around. Oh my God, this is what I was going to say. Hoff, okay, you guys have dubbed eras, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the college years. Mm -hmm. Have you dubbed this era yet? No. can, Can it be high school reunion? (laughs) <laughs> think about it getting think the band back it. together yeah think about yeah. that so we're talking like because of you figure you got better than a thousand you had yeah. battery you all um would nerve agents fall in that yeah Maybe. yeah that was same that was, a, that was like the next year like 99 oh we played with them at chain reaction we did no that wasn't redemption 87 oh my god you're no i I, I think I always, just... I always get them confused. Ugh. We played. We did oh. something with Eric Ozine and his daunting physique and long shorts. Yeah, but uh, shit. I liked, I knew I knew Eric from I knew Eric from the Bay Area as well. I, it yeah. wasn't that's not a jab. He just oh, I can't wait! I can't wait to talk about the Nerve Agents record. So yeah. I'm a big fan. Um, Good stuff. Of, yeah. of, of I've been Eric's. trying to get them. Every person I talk to about Nerve Agents is just like. It's it's like I'm talking about inside out. It's just a dead fucking no. I don't know who killed whose fucking girlfriend, but I can't <laughs> get any answer beyond fucking not a chance on earth. And so I'm like, so yeah, but I've tried no nerve agents every time. And if you're listening, fucking talk to me if somebody's not talking to the right people, because I will fucking pay you handsomely way more. I've got ball check and a bass player. Or that yeah. <laughs> put together a band if you need, whatever you need. I, I little little known, little known thing about the master planner over here. When we decided to do speak last, or four and one last year and Josh Stanton had some health challenges, I called Lisk about whether or not Brian would be interested in whether or not it seemed like a realistic thing, but also drop the idea of maybe Lisk playing bass, right? And we actually started brewing and stirring, trying to turn 411 into a four-piece and have Lisk in 411 so that he and Balchek could practice when Kevin Murphy wasn't available. And 411 ended up not being something that recurred with the frequency I would like. Uh, but uh, that would have been killer. I think that would have been so fun. You know, I've, po- I've poked him more than once to do music in the last several years though and you come up with all kinds of grandpa reasons that you don't think you should do it i will write music all day long but i don't have any urge to ever play live again Hmm. and also hav i was talking to ball metal about this i told him i go because when we were talking about the 411 thing and it possibly being that, I was like, dude, honestly, I don't think I could do it. But I go, you know who would be great is Hav. And I brought your name your name up for that. 
I nice. thought you would be fucking perfect for that. But anyway, that's you know story of my life. Always talked about at the <laughs> office, but never <laughs> never pulled up out of the, yeah. out of the roster. <laughs> that's funny. Um Jason. Were there any 411 songs? You guys are working on new music, weren't you? There's a song called Then Again, Then Again. Yes. Which is about the unfortunate recurrence of so many of the things that pissed us off when we were young, mm. showing up even more dramatically in our in our adulthood. That I think is the best song we ever wrote. And there is very loose talk about doing a two-song recording of that and this uh, pro-choice anthem, Flesh, in December. Because we're coming into an election year. SCOTUS knocked down Roe v. Wade this year. Be a good time for a Flesh single. Because Flesh was, it's like it's it's on the discography, but it was a live cut, right? Yeah, we changed it and tightened it up a little bit. Okay. So, yeah. It's a great song, too. I like it. We did we did one or two 411 songs with Speak, I think, when we, we did went Thoughts to the, the Fire, or whatever they call it. Nice. Not that I saw Wait, what song? Sorry, <laughs> Jason's so mad he missed. We did that. We did it in Europe. I thought we only did that, Chris. I thought we only did that in Europe. Yeah, just Europe. Where you're in Europe, they want to you play to play for, for two hours, three and a half. Yeah, hours. that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. And it took me. It took me. I don't remember if we did the European tour last. I feel like we did. I, I thought. So. It, I thought it was U.S. tour, Europe, then Rev tour. But I could be wrong. But either way, I remember pitching four one one. Yeah. cover for fucking ever and it was just like no no shut up shut up and then finally it was like all right fine finally dan got lisped yeah he got lisped. <laughs> what song and and i didn't catch what were the songs that you guys did the 411 songs just it was just one the, the front the song that's not those homophobic on the seven inch gotcha i'm tired of thinking the thoughts that feed the fire that one yes see I, the fucking seven inch is under credited that's a fucking great record it is i love the, i love both i love the lp and the seven inch yeah um there's this thing like speak was the first lp where i didn't feel like i felt the need to lard the vocals up on the lp like no for an answer has this great raw seven inch that has all of the immediacy no for an answer right yeah, oh, yeah. they had all the immediacy of like the seven inches that i grew up on the cfa seven inch the negative approach seven inch right mm-hmm. Then by the time we're doing Thought Crusade with Bratton and listening to all these records that are coming in, like, you know, Age of Coral and all this stuff, you lard on all these additional guitar tracks. And then I start trying to see what it would sound like if a volcano sang a hardcore record. And <laughs> it's just it's just not as good as that raw, immediate, go-for-the-throat stuff, like the 7-inch, in my opinion. 4-1, very much the same thing. This clean, bright, razor-edged seven-inch, followed up by this big, jiggling bowl of turkey gravy vocals on the LP. But there's some stuff like I'm very proud of the naked face because I thought it was way out of my range, you know. But by and large, that record sounds chubby compared to the seven-inch. And it, I think speak chubby. Maybe that's why I chubby. like it so much. Maybe that's why I like Josh, the Josh, so Josh, Josh says that record sounds Canadian. Which I don't even know what that means, but it makes me laugh so hard. Oh, I fucking hate the album. It just fucking sounds Canadian. Oh, that's <laughs> probably why I like it too. That's so good. That's Canadian hardcore. <laughs> Guys, I got to be honest. I'm kind of upset you haven't asked me about the fucking shorts yet. Hey, you know what? I was, what? was, I was, I was thinking about, about it because it looks like 
it looks like you took your pants <laughs> off before you went on stage. They well, look those like are the pants. Boxer shorts. Oh, I know they are. And it's funny because those shorts are fashionable now. That's what I was gonna say. They look tight. <laughs> they look tight. Hey, and they look I, I would, cool. Now. I would wear that outfit now. But yeah, in ninety eight or ninety nine, that's. I want to see what Lisk has to say about them and about overall Lisk fashion sense during speak tours. And if he undersells it, I will fill in the gaps. But My mom made me those. They're spandex, fucking zebra tiger shorts, black and white. My mom made them for me and I wore them like every show. I was always trying to fucking look like a buffoon peacocking, being an idiot. I didn't I dress up like Spider-Man. You dressed he played a show as Spider-Man in a children's Spider-Man costume, which <laughs> fit, fit beautifully. Yep. And, and did the same thing as a ninja. <laughs> played a show, played a show as a ninja. Um, oh, which, you know, the point to the sky crowd loves a good ninja. Um <laughs> You know, and then the other thing was we played this thing called Crazy Fest. I think it was the first one in Louisville, big day-long festival. And come showtime, he comes out of the back at Crazy Fest with, we'd all been not shaving everything else, comes out with this bushy Fu Manchu mustache that was real and cop shades. And I'm like, all right, yeah, fuck it, chips, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) That was two guys. To the the I've been recognized maybe three times in my Big life, nice. and one of them, two people from that show, I think Joe Principi from Rise Against was at that show. About. Told me about it, and then fucking uh, Andy Williams brought up that show as well. He might have been there. Hey, Andy <laughs> loves Andy loves a strong look. I remember yeah. I went to see. Every time I die one time when I lived in San Diego and my tooth had been knocked out and I was wearing a sailor hat and he goes, Hav, you look fucking awesome right now. (laughs) (laughs) He loves a good look. Hey, also on the cover of this record, it appears that you're not using a pick. I was going to ask about that too. Yeah. Are you fucking fleeing it? I dropped it right in the middle of that song. I fucking dropped the pick and literally in, in the roll of footage that we saw, I don't know, maybe Rev still has the photos, but there's a photo sequence of me like banging my head so hard and, I, and I'm top heavy. I've got man boobs and I, I've always had them. I fucking rolled and did like a somersault forward. And I think on that song and ended up like in her face with the bass. That was a borrowed bass too. So that was somebody's music, man. That wasn't mine. And because I think I broke a string on my other one. Like I was a fucking mess. I didn't know what I was doing. But yeah, I somersaulted and just smashed into her. And there's like a full photo sequence. And like one of the shots is her camera like, like all jacked up. But yeah, drop the pick. I was excited because he's a pepper man. I'm I'm a pepper man, uh, but I, I you know what? I'll go to Rev this week and see if I can. I know where the um the artwork is right next to Igby's desk. Rad. So I'll go in there sometimes when Igby's not there and sit at his desk looking through artwork, or yes, maybe and- just when everybody's in there going about their business and I'm just fucking fiddling through envelopes and touching all this like original artwork and stuff. It's awesome. So I, I do have to say, hearing about Lisk's outfits is, is Dan, you must have uh, loosened up a little bit from 
I remember getting a real kick out of reading the all ages book. You know, we talked about mm -hmm. with Sterling talking about pitching to you for no for an answer uh, to dress as King Henry the eighth with the. Yeah, but what Sterling doesn't, Sterling doesn't say there is that like, he wasn't like, Liska was like as part of the team, right? Sterling is suggesting that to make fun of me and to piss me off. If you want to piss me off, it's not that hard a thing to do. If you want me to laugh with you, it's not that hard a thing to do. Fair. But, you know, if you come at me, bro, you know, <laughs> you know. Also, that was, I mean, the Lisk Bratton lineup, Lisk and, I mean, not Lisk, the Sterling Bratton lineup. Sterling was a good, an old friend of ours, but he was pretty malcontentish within six or seven months of joining the band. So don't think that the, the turkey drumstick was a loving gesture. It wasn't. <laughs> I just always reading that just cracked me up. I mean, as far sure. as me loosening up, Lisk is a big fan of putting pictures on the internet of either him wearing nothing or me with my pants around my ankles on stage. And I don't oh, know I if I'm willing. To, I don't know if I'm willing to to admit that, that really happened. I sent that yeah. to him. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, yeah, we got naked you, in Europe. You can. I, I know I didn't get naked because I've never been. That, I've never I, had that kind of courage. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, if you can't laugh while you're out there doing this, you're doing it wrong. I mean, I still I still manage to throw epic guilt trips between songs. So, yeah. <laughs> we, we, out of everything, like, I feel like, because I've talked to fucking almost every single band member he's been in a band with, right? And we had a different experience in Speak because we had so much fucking fun we laughed we were like it we really bonded together and we had a good time and it, talking to other band members you know it, I, I don't know if they just didn't get it you know but like we were, we were all really young in those earlier bands yeah you know i mean like gavin and i were very young we were 19 and 20 when we started playing music together and gavin is the one of the more quiet solemn you know, beings you'll ever find besides maybe an Easter Island statue. And, uh, you know, great guy in a lot of ways, a hero of mine. Um, Kevin Murphy and I ended up very competitive, unhealthily competitive with each other very early on. That doesn't exist between us as older guys. You know, I think by speak, I had taken a break and was, I knew what I wanted, you know, and there were things that happened early in the band that I didn't agree with. And I did my best to snuff them out. But as far as who wanted to go out on the road and not have a good time, well, that would have been stupid. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I enjoy I, I enjoyed the shit out of it, and I remain extremely proud of it. I think I've probably this is probably a bummer for you guys because I think I've probably brought it up in other interviews, maybe the four one one interview. But there was this conversation I had with Henry Rollins when I was a kid. Uh, I was probably nineteen, and it was when Lifetime was coming out. And he, he talked about like sort of everything being at 11. That never want to get on stage and not just already know before you strike a note that you're going to be the baddest ass band on the stage that night. That you're going to hit fucking every note. That the energy's not going to sag. That uh, you're going to be a SWAT team. You're going to be like, you know, it's going to be like a troop insertion every time you play. Speak was the first band I was in that made a run of that. Like we really tried hard to to meet that ethos. None of my other bands did, 
and then Shiner's Club went at that even harder. And the 13 people who saw the band might agree. I don't know. <laughs> so you had a lot of fun. Yeah. But this is the last record you did. So what so what happened? Life, I think. You know. I don't think anybody knows because we all still kind of talked. No one ever it it was, I don't know. It was I really think within a year of that, Eric lived in Europe. Um Y2K came pretty soon. And I remember 2000, like the winter of 2000, I was in the Bay Area staying in my friend Mark. Mark, from the guitarist from Both Hands Broken, I was staying in his apartment trying to move back to the Bay Area. You know, uh, I think I think Jeff went back to the Bay Area and then eventually Arizona. Like, we all moved into town in a way, not, not Chris and Liz, but Everybody moved. So I was living in my, my grandmother passed away during this period. She was ill. And I just, she had a three bedroom house in Anaheim. And we moved. As soon as we decided this was going to be a touring band, I, Eric came in from Arizona and moved into one of the bedrooms. Jeff came down from the barrier to live in one of the bedrooms. And that was headquarters. Mm. You know, and I sold that house shortly after these tours. So there's a bunch of different. That was a great time for me. Uh, I bought your motorcycle and I bought your record collection for $500. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, that still, have, I still have probably 40% of them, but I was, I was hurting at one point and a lot of those monies. Or a lot I don't of those, remember there being that much great stuff in it, except that it probably had a bunch of test pressings. Yeah. Yes. And oh, it had gosh. an original, and it had an, and it, and it had a very first pressing nervous breakdown. I think. Oh, can I tell you my number? But one I had sold a lot of my records by then too. You know what was in there, which is my number one prize possession? What? Screaming for change test press. There was probably a breakdown in the walls in there too. No. No. Okay. No. I had screaming for. I had the first three wishing walls. We're sort, of the last, we're sort of the last evidence that Pat Dubar and I were once close. Was I had, <laughs> yeah. I had, you know, they'd get like 10 test pressings of a record. One was always going to go to Omaha. So I had, I had Screaming for Change, Power of Expression, and Break Down the Walls. Oh, that's a good trio. And yeah. didn't spend a penny on any of them. You know, just, you know, dude, are you coming over? Fucking test pressings are in, you know. I had, uh, I had, you gave me all the workshed test pressings. Which that's where I got my black spot, Hav. Hey, speaking of, Lisk, do you happen to have a Mission Impossible test press? I don't. I did. Yeah. But I sold it. I I remember when that was on eBay and I had heard that it went to you. And I have like seven different copies, different copies of that record. Oh, yeah. Different kinds of purple and fucking this and that. And I was like, I need to get a test press. Yeah. One of the weirdest things about every time I talk to you guys, because we've come up with excuses to do a few of these. I mean, this is my <laughs> first conversation with you dudes. Um, is how little part foresight played in anything we did mm. and how much bigger and how much lighter load hindsight is than I expected it. And what I mean by is you part with all these things you never thought would be worth a damn. Or 10 years ago, you think they're cresting and, you know, God, I bet you I could get 40 bucks for a screaming for change test press. Whoops. Sure. You know, um, but then the other thing is with most people from the past, these vicious rivalries and really intense anger and everything else, 
burned really hot at the time is absolutely meaningless now. And that's a big deal to me. I guess you know, Pat Dubar still didn't want much to do with me and whatever, you know. That's fine. Uh, I can, you know, I can, I can, I, I can text Longry and feel like I'm forgiven. But uh, what do you call it? Things like the like the telling that side of the, my side of the Foster story. My hope would be, and my suspicion would be that he can laugh about it, be pissed for thirty or forty seconds, and tell his version because that's a part to me. That's part of getting older and a yeah. part of living through these things. And there was this book event when uh, the straight when when uh, Redman's Straight Edge book came out, right? Mm-hmm. They did a panel in a bookstore, and I was on it, and Mastis was on it, and John Rowe was on it, and Vic was on it, uh, Vic Simba and all these people. I remember it. And a lot of things that I said, like there were people who said Dan shouldn't be on this this, this thing. He's not, he's not straight edge, right? And I was thrilled to be there, and we talked, and in my opinion, we talked a lot of shit. People came up to me and told me that was great. And it's funny because it was like when we were kids, we all talked shit on each other. Right? I mean, if I'd had children, I'm pretty sure chain of strength would have killed them. You know, <laughs> but you know, in adulthood, it becomes a space we can laugh and we can romanticize. I mean, that might be my favorite thing about doing you guys' podcast. Because I almost always hear something new and I almost always get a kick out of something that I would have seen very differently 20 years earlier. Well, I like that too. Yeah. It's, and, and like you said, it's the, the the more experience and the more life you go through, the, the farther we get into life. It's like so many things from back then that were a big deal aren't really a big deal. If you and can like hold you a said, grudge for 40 years, I equal parts envy and feel sorry for you. Yeah. And and without getting too specific, I feel like there's there you're, not everyone has the uh hindsight that you have, Dan. Um I think some people still you can that we've talked to you can feel there's still some bad blood. Um and it's kind of a bummer because you are like, dude, aren't you guys in your 40s and 50s? Like this shouldn't be a thing. You shouldn't really care about something that happened in 1987. Well if we want to get into something that's not very speak related, the only thing I would counter that is there are serious things that hardcore people disagree on now. They didn't disagree on back then. Like you look at like when Tompkins Square had the show while the virus was still running high, mm-hmm. right? That drove a wedge between a lot of people, and I think it should have. And I think that was good. And I had plenty to say about my side of it. I like that. That's not the same thing as still being pissed about high school pissing matches, about competitive right. rivalries, about, you know, whose band is more, you know, true. You know, like, so there's one of the things, one of the reasons that I, I, I railed against the first few big waves of reunion hardcore, you know, all the stuff that Chris manages, um, <laughs> was that life has brought us a shit ton of new content that the bands haven't. You know, and they're all smart people. They're all creative people, almost to a man. And that's just because really gender specific. These are almost all male bands, but almost to a man, they're more talented than I am. You know, I would love to hear what they have to say. I've come to appreciate that they have the freedom and the opportunity to keep doing what they do. But I think new work would be commendable. You know, they're bright, creative people who have lived a lot. 
Yeah, tell it to Walter. His, his just keeps turning out great work, you know? Because look, yeah, by the way, people who are listening to this list shook his head when I said that. Yeah, I I, ju- I totally disagree. I just think some some bands, you leave it where it is and others you can, you know? Like mm-hmm. the ones who want to continue to, you know, I, a perfect example is Rick Froberg could continue. Th- that dude was writing better stuff his newest stuff was his best stuff like you're not wrong life is life is full of grades i didn't mean to be black and white about yeah other people they just shouldn't they just shouldn't you know if you didn't like the last youth of today seven inch uh oh the covers wait that's a covers one isn't it wait that's not new though it's not new music yeah that's all old stuff i think i'm thinking i think i'm thinking of that gb i think i'm thinking of the last gb seven inch anyway but i like that I like everything GB. You can fuck off. Talented guys. And yes, I can fuck them. <laughs> How about, um, what, or, or like, say, like, I won't even say it. No, I will. Like um, DYS, the DYS new stuff. Like, there's sometimes where it's just like, yeah. Oh, I didn't even know they did anything. They did, didn't they? On yeah, they did, a bunch of, yeah. they did a bunch of singles a while back. I thought they did, an, they did an album, too, but I'm not sure. I mean, I think Bridge Nine was excited about them for a while. <gasps> Anastas is fun to play with. I don't mean play music. I mean, okay. Like he and I have a, he and I have a great time going back. Oh, and, and yeah, like I mean, I've had nothing great interactions with those any thread online that Anastas and I get into is good for at least the first sixty or seventy comments, and then he gets a little exhausting. But <laughs> yeah. hey, I gotta I gotta throw this in about Dag Nasty. Total, this is fucking totally fucking different. Has nothing to do with anything. But um, uh, Hob, you hate Dag Nasty, right? I don't enjoy listening to Dag Nasty. They're okay. one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> okay, I'll talk to you then. So uh, um, I just found out that Ian Mackay wrote some of the original Dag Nasty, Dag Nasty Can I Say vocal melodies. Mm-hmm. Really? Which makes so much fucking sense. Well, I've always maintained the Can I Say or that whole era, because I guess you know the, the, the first batch of Sean Brown stuff is... Even precedes can I say, but it sounds like minor threat records would come out out of step. It sounds like out of step part. Too. It does. That I, that's that's to me that's the most listenable material. The Sean Brown stuff. Uh huh. Right. I've I've held that yeah. Sean Brown stuff in much higher regard as time has gone on. Uh huh. Um, I think he sounds like the East Coast Billy Rubin. I just meant the songwriting. I think but definitely. I think, think Smalley and I have almost nothing in common. Create in common. Cre- Creatively or politically, but man, the vocals on "Can I Say" he is a bad man. Yeah, he's that is hilarious. just that is just a high water mark in the history of this music. And if you go and you listen to the fucking the DYS metal album, I don't know another hardcore singer who could have hit those notes either. Mm. Like I have to go see, listen. See, that's to the thing. He went through an, I, I went like through an era where he was just kind of a vocal Zeus, and then he decided, yeah. you know, he kind of infused a little more Kermit the Frog, but. And he's a he's Smalley is gifted. There's no two ways about it. But to me, those two records hard to touch them. You know? Yeah, for sure. And and uh, he, like I said, I I'm not a fan of the DYS stuff, but his vocals sound great on it. Like the, you know, we're the talking new... about very little, but the scum also rises. Suggest that, totally. there's not, <laughs> <laughs> suggest that there's not a lot of record there. <laughs> It's short. We worked out of my uh, mom's basement on uh, Hamilton Street in Costa Mesa. We, I had an I, 
I made an attic in my mom's uh, like two bedroom condo. There was an attic and I cut down a door in the um, in the closet and it opened up to this like a frame type attic. And I threw down some plywood. We threw a drum set and all the amps in there. And I, I used to practice third degree in there. I, I practiced. Uh, we used to enter that practice room through a hole in the wall. Yeah. Mm. There was no door. Yeah, yeah no door. We just kind of like went through. You know, the, the promo photo of us in front of the white picket fence is us sitting outside of my mom's house. Mm. I have to find the photo. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah if you just Some European fans people. used that photo. We're sitting in front of a white picket fence in California. And the caption was speak 714, California's sunny boys. Oh, I see it. <laughs> I, I see it. I see it right now. Uh, That's funny. Dan, since so, since so, so we only have four songs on this record, can you run us through the lyrics run us through the lyrical content of each song real quick? You'd have to give me the titles, but I mean well, well okay, it's White Noise Amsterdam. The first Standard one, which Canyon. I love, I always forget the title of. Stick and Move is the name of Stick and Move. I was curious if that was about someone in particular or if that was just kind of a general. Always. There's always someone in particular. It's always a girl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I kind of remember that as being kind of a pushback against what I came to realize was happening in hardcore. Amsterdam is very much fun. Um, Am Am Amsterdam was just kind of about. Actually, you know why I think you might be right about Europe coming before Revtour. Because I think Amsterdam is about is about the girl the time I spent with Claudia. Yes, I had an I had a German girlfriend from back in the No Fair Answer tour days. We were together for about three and a half years, and I'm sure I healthily processed our growing distance in that song. I mean, it was about it was about not remaining attached to the point of self. It would be the intellectual way to describe it. I never write mean songs until I did a whole album of them in Shiner's Club. Um, but uh, that was just like a personal exorcism where the figures I'm singing to are kind of combined people from my life. Um, so that I don't think we agree on the first song. The second song is about a personal relationship. Uh, Stand and Diminish was probably my first time I rose my head and, you know, Looking back is not moving forward; it's standing still. It was sort of when I really started to get annoyed with people didn't seem to want to explore much in terms of content, and that was a new that was a new animal to me in hardcore. I had never walked into these rooms. There was always sort of this one-upsmanship about being the first one to get. They'd be important topics, right? But like I guarantee you, Zach was jealous of the Domino Principle, you know. The same way I probably was of his first homeless hand. And then Popeye would come up that, you know, flipped another, you know, soft left touchstone over and asked for more humility and more kindness towards the human condition from somebody lyrically. And then you come back, not even a full five years later, and we just wanted to do a book report on the past and not really introduce much new subject matter. I mean, this. The speak the speak LP has songs about AIDS and things like that, and songs about self hate masquerading as hard guy behavior. You know, like it was there was interesting exploration going on. And I think Stand in a Minute is a comment on the lack of that that I didn't see coming when I went back into these rooms. Uh, 
the last song, White Noise, trying to think about what it's about. What I do remember about it is we used to open with it once in a while, which I found weird because it's an odd song. And it's good music if that weird Fugazi-ish guitar weren't there, that you know, between the dun 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 right? I think I might have written better vocals. I think I tried to put a DC texture on that song where it doesn't belong. You know, like riding this calliope that doesn't need to be there. So, I mean, it's, regrettably, it's not a record whose lyrical content I look back on and put a lot of importance on. There's like a lot of, it was interesting thinking about doing this with you guys. I suspected it would be a good conversation and I knew it would be fun to do it with Lisk. But I was like, what am I going to say about this record? Because it, it's, we've revisited this a couple times and I was glad to hear that Chris agrees. But really, this whole period in this particular band was all about the live show and the tours mm. and about exploring our role in it and sort of, deciding where we wanted to draw contrast between how it used to be and how it is now and how we think it should be going forward, you know, and it was fun and powerful, but we probably should have spent more time on the follow-up record and given more of ourselves. It was four quick songs to take care you know, to take care of a need for a follow-up. And like you said, Hob, I mean, I think an LP would have been a better idea and would have probably been more challenging intellectually. Yeah, I think that just life got in the way and it just, you know, guys just kind of started going different directions. And then it was, you know, just kind of I, I think the EP was put out fast because the plan was like, oh, OK, well, we can write music. We can put it out. We can release it. We can tour. We'll for sure get together and practice and write something else and do an LP and do something more proper. But then it just kind of, you know, life happened. Here's something. The tirade, the blurb, says what the follow-up record should have said lyrically. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it yeah. does. And the it fact does. that it wasn't there in the lyrics is probably why the blurb exists. And I probably wasn't self-aware enough back then to realize that. Why the fuck am I writing this little mission statement, this little <laughs> fuck you mission statement? And, and what doesn't it start with in case it wasn't clear? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, looking so, at your own behavior and so experiencing revelations. What was, was maybe, was it the, that statement that made me think, cause if I thought stick and move to me, I thought was that, was that a pro choice song? Let's hear some of the lyrics. Uh, we stick and move the male, of the species arrogant. Yes, it was. Okay. I can tell by the first line, but look <laughs> okay. at, but look at, but look at, I already have flesh. You know what I mean? So like in a sense, it's, yeah, I, I, I would say, uh, I don't know that I gave that record the effort it deserves. Fair. No? Yeah. And then White Noise. The second I that heard that, I remembered the song. I remembered the lyrical too. And before that, I was just looking uh, at the title. Yeah. Was White Noise an anti-religious song? I have no doubt it was, but why don't you show? <laughs> I'm reading How Well I Live the Lie. I'm thinking I bleed in black and white. But but the lyrics, I think, if I believe everything I read, I'll be moving no. mountains all day. No, 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 no. It was about, it, if I remember right, it was sort of about public perceptions and sort of the standards that you're expected to meet as a hardcore musician versus reality. Okay. 
right. So yeah. yeah I, I've That's never, cool. I've never, I've never dug the empirical uh, superhuman mission. The hardcore front people are supposed to be these god figures. That they run your mouth, and it's fun. But there's a lot of presentation as ourselves as being elevated in this in this small group of aging men. You know, and I it's we talked about it in another podcast. I know too much behind the scenes to buy into that shit. <laughs> List get something to say now. Yeah, that was somewhat of a take on like reading a uh like a newspaper interview or something a little bit. White noise, right? Do I, I think it, so. Right. I think I remember there was some sort of interview with somebody that came out and it was kind of like uh like what the fuck is this guy talking about sort of thing, sort of response. Yeah, I don't doubt it. But yeah, I, I think it very much has to do with public presentation versus practical reality. reality. It's really, it's really, and I would hate to, I would hope that people enjoy listening to this podcast to hear about the part of that time that matters to us. But it's really a record I've virtually never revisited. There have been a few times I go back to it and I go back to it to listen to one very specific thing. And that's the breakdown, the slow riff, which isn't even a slow riff. But the riff in Stand and Diminish, it's, it's when when Lisk wrote it, I was like, who the fuck is he to be writing dirty, scary, sexy, evil riff? Because that riff <laughs> sounds, well, it sounds like a cobra swimming around underneath the song or underneath the vocals. Like you're just going to fucking bite you on the neck at some point. It's almost, it's almost freaking Egyptian. It's like, it was trippy. Like it was, it's always exciting when you're playing with musicians and they pull a rabbit out of their hat. And I'd been with Chris for at least a year at that point. I was like, oh my. You know, and then when he did V2, I heard more of the same thing. And I was like, I don't think I understand this guy musically as well as I thought I did. And he, he gave me this demo last year. Maybe it might even been longer than that. Go with that. It's just him and uh, Brett from Ignite doing songs. Like 11 songs to it or stuff. Oh, so no. forth. And some, of, some, no, and some of the riffing, I'm just like, I fucking hate talented people. <laughs> I just, you know. It's funny. So speaking of the songs, mm-hmm. I think now is probably a good time to kick Put the hot, hot tracks. tracks. Yeah. Greg, what do you got? Um, stand and diminish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for like reasons that Dan talked about, but also the song record. Also the 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 lyrics. Um, I think like I understand it more now in 2023 than maybe I would have in 1999 mm. when I was all about like, you know, that whole like retread of stuff, which I love, you know, I love, we've all talked about this. We love, you know, all those bands. Um, but I do think part of what hardcore needs is for people to be saying something and saying something that maybe hasn't been said before, like not necessarily just following the like blueprints of like we need an animal rights song or we need a straight edge song or we need a you know anti-racism song like kind of going a little bit deeper um makes you think so but musically and lyrically that's that's my hot track for sure hey i bet unless jason has something different I bet that's just all across the board gonna be everybody's <laughs> hot track that's that's my hot track it's my hot that's track mine. too is it I we yeah. always we 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 make fun of people quite a bit that get caught in this nostalgia trap where they just kind of seem stuck in a moment that they cannot get out of. And we do this podcast and it's it's 
reflecting and looking back on right uh, so it's like past, but it's not it's not uh you know what i'm saying well you don't you don't tell anybody who comes on the podcast to not ruin the myth and that's something i appreciate oh uh, yeah i you that's know, like, that that's we get the texts a week later from somebody else in the band that it's like <laughs> well, I, hate, I hate to burst your bubble but this is what really happened yeah too late but yeah, it's uh, it and it is funny to say like we're we're literally doing a podcast, going back, in in time. But Revelation still exists now, and they're still putting out records. So it's like it's like that scene in Spaceballs. When will then be now? Soon. <laughs> Spaceball conversion as it should be. Yes. <laughs> you know, but but. Uh, that's this is definitely the first time I think everyone's had the same. Oh, did, uh, I think, did I think me and Liz played it too. Yeah, I mean, you guys are just assuming I'm gonna pick. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am. So my hot track is <laughs> the fucking song that I wrote. <laughs> I'll take it. If we go across the board, that's a dream come true. I love hot tracks. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll. I'll... I'll get in there so you pitch a shout out. Yeah, it's the best song on the record. Yeah. It's I, the, I, it's the only one that still I, resonates with me. I I didn't even really pay attention to the lyrics for that song. I just thought musically it was a fucking ripper. It's just it really it, is. It, it it it's uh it's a great hardcore song. And the vibe on this record is still got, I mean. It's still got that Southern California. If you listen to Stick and Move, the transitions are shamelessly imitating Joe Foster. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's still got why, that Joe you know, Foster feel without to being the point like, to the point where I don't know if we should claim it as ours. Without being a it's like it's like it's like the first song on the record is like AI Joe Foster. <laughs> AI Joe Foster. But it's not the meme where it's like, well, we got Joe Foster at home. You yeah. know what I mean? It's not like a bad watered down version. It's just in the same vein as what he built. It lives in the house that Foster built. He's, yeah. a, sig he's a signature artist. There's no getting around it. Oh, yeah. And uh, after this, Lisk, were you in, uh, was Foster in Killing Flame? Oh. Or was that Brett? Fun fact. Oh. When we we recorded the Killing Flame at Moonsong, Christ, uh, I didn't know you were in Killing Flame. And well, I was until this fun fact that Foster, I to me, I believe purposely left my Marshall guitar cabinet in Corona, and at this time I didn't have a car, right? Which is, I believe, one of the reasons why I got kicked out of the third degree because. Those fuckers were super shitty at my mom's house and fucking fat fuck Hampton would fucking knock over drinks all the time and wouldn't. Pick oh, up I was talking shit. Wow. Yes, I'm for sure talking shit. Fuck him. I'll fucking kill him. Um, I'm just kidding. I love him. Uh, but anyway, he was he was just being super disrespectful. He'll have a totally different argument. But that's I was like, fuck you. You guys aren't fucking practicing here at my house anymore. And then they were like, hey, you're out of the band. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I don't have a car. I have no way to get to any other practice. That's probably why I was in the band because they were practicing at my mom's house. But Foster and Nelson left my fucking cabinet in Moonsong. And if you're a kid from fucking Costa Mesa and you don't have a car, Corona is 
fucking 17 states away. So I called and left a message for either Nelson or Foster saying that I fucking hope they die and I'm going to kill them. And I had a full meltdown because they left my fucking amp out there. And that was me kind of like quitting the killing flame and just being like, fuck you guys. I hate you. How could you do this to me? Cause I had to figure out how to drive out to go pick up this fucking stupid amp. And then, um, you know, the Nelson, the, the constant politician was nice enough to put something on the kill flame record of like, you know, thank you or something or whatever, but yeah. So did you not play on the, Oh no, there's a bunch of shit. There's a bunch of shit that I played on, but I just like, that was like, after the recording was done, I was like, fuck you guys. But then I think they still put something on the full length of, you know, thanks, Chris. I don't know what the fuck it is. Like I'm on the seven inch that came out on live wire for the killing flame. That's when I was peak sexy. But then the full length, there was just like a thank you or something. I don't know. This weird moment of of like LCHC stopover bands. John Henry Holiday's on Livewire. Yeah, straight Ed McCurdy, dude, fucking holding it down. I was gonna say we have two two Livewire vets here. There's a Dan. And you actually had another third degree was on Livewire as well, right? Was it really? That would have so. been, that was, I might have been, but I was only on the first record, which was on Finn slash Indecision Records, mm-hmm. gotcha. which was Kevin Finn, Rev fucking Webmaster, Web, Webmaster fame. Uh, yeah, he put that seven inch out. And that was, what I remember about Livewire was somehow during the handling of John Henry Holiday, I got into a conversation with Ed McCurdy about Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> And I came away from it going, Jesus, and I thought I had a Winona writer problem. I was like, like, that was almost creepy. But anyway. I was just going to say that, Lisk, if you go on the third degree discogs, the main picture is you, Kevin Pantner, and Jason Hampton in a closet. That's the closet. That's the main photo for third degree. That's the closet doorway that you walk into. The secret door. To the back practice space. Mm-hmm. Yep. Dude, Speak used to practice in that space, and there were five guys in the band. Yeah, I cannot believe that that roof held up. That is wild. That is fucking wild. Well, uh, I think we've come to the end of the <laughs> speak, 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 speech. Um, speak, speech. And we this, even mentioned the record the episode spoke to me about. That is we did, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I, I just want everybody to know that Lisk is a longtime fan, listener, caller of the band. He's literally called me on the phone to talk to me about episodes. And I don't talk on the phone a lot, but if I see Chris Lisk come up on my caller ID, I'm going to fucking answer it because I know it's going to be an interesting conversation. So I love it. Yeah, Chris, thank, I do want to thank you for the support. And I know you wrote a nice review on the apple podcast and all that i fucking love it and also can i tell you that this podcast got me into ice burn yes that was one that i was just like fucking i skipped for too long and then i was like you know what i was like listen to the podcast and i was like fuck man i need to fucking check this out and then i started getting into ice burn and it's fucking rad it's wild it needs a fucking Mm -hmm. it needs a mastering update because the volume's like super low but Yes. 
It's fucking rad. Supposedly they're working on. I feel like this has come up a couple times, but yeah, supposedly they're they're working on. Uh, Andy Patterson was working on like remastering it and remixing it, like Hephaestus and stuff. So when we got them on, we got them on one of the Rev shows. I think it was New York, maybe. Yeah, they're, they're on that. The, Greg Brown, the warehouse Greg Brown from uh, not Slothker Greg Brown mm-hmm. from Rev was like, "Hey, get Iceburn," and I was like, "Okay." And so I did, I literally did just because he said to do it. <laughs> so I was like, Hey guys, you want to play uh, this Rev 25 show Irving Plaza? Hey, by the way, it, you guys are probably coming to the end of this. When you cut off, can we fucking boot Dan and do like 10 minutes so I could just talk some fucking serious shit about yeah. stuff besides <laughs> speak? <laughs> We'll have oh, to have you back for a bonus. I, yeah, I feel like we need sure. a just Chris List. Yeah, bonus we do. Episodes. You know what? We need a Chris Lisk curated uh, Crisis Records bonus episode. Oh, that'd be fun. A little yeah. function. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Little fucking, dude, I'll call in some fi- I'll call in some interviews. I'll get some guys. I'll get <laughs> some you. guys together. We'll talk. Look at Dan. Early 90s Dan is just like, what the fuck are you guys fucking talking about? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think the I understand this as well as I understand the fucking bit of bow business. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> well, with that, I'm pretty comfortable leaving, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me too. It's late. Yeah, it's yeah, late it's here about that time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys are fucking, jeez. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Chris, we'll, we'll definitely hit you up. Uh, even if it's just me and you bullshitting for an hour, I think that I think would be, that'd be awesome. Great Rad. content. All right, Dan, Chris, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, this thank you. will be out. I think in the beginning. What's up, y'all? It's Javier. Uh, listen, I'm gonna read you a list of names right here. This list is very important to us because this is a list of our top tier Patreon supporters. Here it goes. Billy Tunnell, Brandon Gavell, Brian Skiffington, Brooklyn, Chad Keplinger, David Palmer, Dirk Focused, John Cowell, Quiet Keith, Nate of Head to Wall fame, Ryan Walker, Ryan White, Tad Payton, Tim Shear, Tyler of the Life and Death Brigade, and Siren Records. Listen, being a Patreon supporter actually really helps us out. Um, it, it pays the bills, it keeps the lights on, and we are so grateful for our everyone who's along the ride, whether you're a $3 supporter or a $20 supporter, whatever it is, you guys are fucking rad. So if you want some information about how to support us on Patreon and, you know, all the, the cool stuff that happens, if you do that, head to whereitwentpodcast.com and find out for yourself. And uh, otherwise... We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again. Bit up, Bo.